I wanted to start this morning on a bit of a, a theological note. I know that word scares people. Theology sounds dry, sounds completely irrelevant to life. Um, but I, I've come in my own experience and thought life and spiritual life to recognize that thoughts about God or truths about God, which is theology proper, um, that they are actually, when the Holy Spirit takes um, the torch of his power and he kind of sets them on fire, that they have tremendous transforming power in one's life. It's the truth of, of who God is, his character, his being, um, and how that being acts in history for the sake of his people, that those great truths actually have tremendous power when the Spirit um, touches down on them and kind of ignites them in the soul. And one of those, those truths, those central truths that God has just over the years continued to just um, ignite in my own soul is one that I once thought the driest piece of theology I ever heard, and that is the doctrine of, of the Trinity. Um, way back in 2nd, 3rd century, the church fathers in their, their, um, their examination of the Bible came to recognize that God is presented as both one and also three, or triune, tri meaning three and yun meaning one. And so they coined that phrase because it best sums up the biblical doctrine of who God is, Trinity. And as I said, I I recognize that for most of us, we're thinking, well, yeah, we'll never understand that, so you just kind of pass it by. But you know what? As I've come to understand it, um, I believe it's like the foundation of of an entire building, Um, that all of biblical truth and revelation and salvation and creation, everything is actually built upon that foundation of this thing we called the Trinity, that that God is one. Deuteronomy 6, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. At the same time, he has eternally and simultaneously existed in three personal expressions or persons, like the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, no matter how much we think, how much we write, how much we read, even into the new creation, I don't think we'll ever fully understand just what this thing called the Trinity is. But that doesn't mean that we can't benefit from the power, the wisdom, and the beauty of it. Scientists don't understand what holds the stars together, but that doesn't keep us from going out and saying the heavens declare the glory of God. You don't have to understand it to benefit from it or see the beauty of it. Because one of the, the, the great things, the great truths that makes Christianity really different from any other belief system um, is this idea of, of Trinity. Um, if God, for example, on the negative side, if, if God just simply existed as a solitary individual, kind of an eternal solitary confinement, he was just a single entity like a man in a closet, that would mean that love is not essential to his makeup, to his character, to his being. In order for love to exist, if you think about it, there at least has to be two. Um, love is intrinsically relational by definition. There is no such thing as love if there's only one. But where there's two or more, there's the possibility of of love. And one of the things that this great doctrine of the Trinity preserves for us and makes it absolutely wonderful is that God existed as one, yet in three. And that means love or grace um, is, 
let's just keep it love for right now. Love is at the very core and essence of his being, which is why the New Testament can say God is love. Why? Because he's not a solitary uh, individual, but he's a one God existing in three persons, and he has forever existed in this kind of covenantal love with himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which is why love is such a, a central mark of the whole of the Bible. I mean, think of the greatest commands in the Bible. They boil down to, to one thing, you know, to love God and to love your neighbor. Why is that? Because that's, that's at the heart of who God is, because he is more than just a solitary individual. That's, he's triune. Um, why is it that the love is at the very center of all of the covenants we find in the Bible? Steadfast love, abounding to generations, thousands of generations, because it's at the heart of God's character. It's essential to his own nature. Why is it that love is the chief mark by which men will know that we're believers, they were followers of God? Well, because that's the central mark of who he is. doesn't mean he's not other things like just and powerful and wise, but it does mean that one of the distinctive marks of the Trinity itself is that it's full of love. That is to say, I mean, the picture that emerges from the Bible, and this is part of it that is just beautiful to me, is that you and I and everything we see, creation, and when we study the Bible and we're talking about the cross and salvation and all of that stuff, all of those things are, 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 are part of this sweeping, like, love affair between the Father who created the universe and, and created people to resemble his Son as a love gift. And then the Son, in an, in an act of love, voluntarily, willingly submits himself, sacrifices himself to save the sinful people. And then we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, that he offers it back to the Father. In other words, the whole of everything we know does not center upon us. It centers on this great stream of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. We're caught up into it. And salvation really boiled down as that God is making a way to invite us into his family. That's, that's the prayer of John 17 when Jesus prays that, that, that they would be one, even as you, Father, and I are one. That they would share in our family love, this covenant love. It's at the center of kind of God's being. His heart's essential to his nature, which it isn't to other views of God. We see him as a solitary entity. Like Islam, for example, views God as a single, solitary entity. There's no triuneness. Therefore, love is not at the center of his character. And David, chapter 9 here, he shows us that he is a man after God's own heart and that if one of the central essential aspects of God is this covenant love he has within himself and then it spills out in creation and redemption. Well, we see that David, a man who resembles God, who is called a man after God's heart, does this same thing. This whole chapter is about covenant love spilling out towards someone who doesn't deserve it. In a way that looks like God, in a way that challenges us in our relationship with each other, um, but also, and most importantly, to understand how God loves us and, and more particularly, what covenant love looks like with regards to us. We talk a lot about love, that four-letter word, which has been almost evacuated of all definition in our culture. But what about covenant love? You know, like the kind of thing you see when a wife and a husband or a man and a woman make vows to each other and covenant together for life to love and sickness and in health and poverty and riches and stuff. That's kind of a covenant idea where there's promises made, vows made uh, to love for as long as you both shall live. Um, that's kind of a picture of, of covenant. 
love, but that's kind of at the heart of who God is, this covenant love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which then spills out in salvation. And here we see it come to light beautifully in this chapter in a way that, again, challenges us to love this way and also to understand that this is the way God loves us. So let me um, just draw out several facets of what we might call this covenant love in a way that I hope challenges us as followers of God who, who want to resemble and have a heart like his, also to understand the way that he loves us and find security in that. In order to understand this chapter, chapter 9, um, we have to back up almost 20 chapters to a simple promise, simple but profound promise, that our, um, our man David here made early in his life. Back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verse 14 through 17, he and his closest friend, his compadre, his amigo, um, they, they make a vow to each other. They swear to each other. They enter into a covenant of love or steadfast love or kindness. Jonathan speaks to David. This is in the midst of tremendous turmoil and conflict. Um, Jonathan says to David, If I am still alive... Show me the steadfast love of the Lord. That's David's favorite word, by the way, and I think at the center of all covenant. Steadfast love, or in the New Testament, it's translated grace. Um, Lord, that I may not die, and do not, here's the part that's going to come to light in chapter 9, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. That is, from my offspring, if it still exists. So he's asking David to to promise to him that he's going to take care of his... um, his sons or daughters or family, his house, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord, Yahweh, uh, take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. This is a, a deep commitment on David's part to make sure that he does not remove or withhold steadfast love after Jonathan's gone promise he made as a, as a young man. Well, the years would tick by, and at least two decades tick by. Jonathan, slain on the mountains of Gilboa, hung out on the walls of uh, Bethshan, and buried later. David became king, rose to power, and possibly a decade or two passed before chapter 9 happens. In other words, years and decades tick by. A promise that he made as a young man to his friend Jonathan. And it's not until chapter 9 of 2 Samuel that David actually looks, he, he searches, he makes an inquiry as to how can I fulfill this covenant of love that I made to my friend decades ago. Now that right there is pretty challenging because, you know, we tend to think that if enough time passes by, we don't need to keep our vows and commitments. You know, it's like, well, that was a long time ago. I don't need to do that. David is exactly the opposite here. Two, three decades pass, and he wants to find someone that he can fulfill his promise to. This is, this is such a reflection of God's heart. This is why I think David has a man after God's own heart. He's looking to guarantee the promise that he made to his friend. So, beginning in verse, verse 1 of chapter 9, we read about David's search. And David said, is there still anyone left to the house of Saul? Now, chapter 8, by the way, the previous chapter, a picture of David as a conquering king, and this one side by side is David, the man of steadfast love, which is a great contrast. Uh, is there still 
anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake. Kindness is the same word translated way back in the, the, the promise I just read, steadfast love. Same Hebrew word. So it's like that I can show this steadfast love for Jonathan's sake. Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him to David, and David, uh, and then the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, Is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness, same word again, steadfast love, of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There is a son, uh, still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. And the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, uh, He is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. And then king David sent and brought him to, from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Phibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, and he fell on his face and paid homage. So David is sought, initiated, through inquiry to find out, is there somebody that I can fulfill this promise to? He's being proactive, active, he's not being passive. And he finds out that there's this single son of, of, of Jonathan left. Only everything is stacked against this man named Mephibosheth. I'm glad we don't name our kids Mephibosheth anymore. That's a mouthful. Um, but as I said, everything's stacked against him. The details of the story of, and descriptions of him kind of tell us that, that in his particular culture of the time, he would have been considered what we might think of as a loser. I mean, start with his name, Mephibosheth. Not only is it funny in English to say it over and over again, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, but it actually means in Hebrew, one who scatters shame. I mean, scatters embarrassment. Like you scatter seed, like he's someone who scatters shame wherever he goes. Can you imagine naming your kid one who scatters shame? Imagine uh, going to sixth grade and hearing for the first time your teacher call roll. You know, is, is Yitzhak Feinstein here? Yep, I'm here. Is there someone here named one who, who scatters shame? <laughs> Bueller. <laughs> You know, it's like, it's just, it, it's, it's, it, that's his name. It's just like the, the one who scatters shame. You add to that the fact that when he was five years old, according to Second, Second Samuel chapter 4, there was this crippling accident. His legs were crushed as they were fleeing the Philistines' army. So he, has, he doesn't have any use of his legs, which in that particular time meant he couldn't really care for himself, support himself, or be productive in society. So he had that going against him. His name, you have his crippled. You notice he's not even living in his own house. He's living in the house of Machir. He doesn't have his own place. He's living on somebody else's resources. For all practical purposes, we might call him somewhat homeless. I mean, he, he lives in somebody else's home. And then last but not least, let's not forget that he's the grandson of David's enemy, Saul. All those things are just kind of going against him. And here David says, hey, bring him to me. And no doubt this, 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 this Mephibosheth, when he came, probably thought that, uh, that it was time to die because in the custom of the day, the incoming dynasty would oftentimes terminate all of the offspring of the outgoing dynasty. Perhaps he expected to die. But that isn't David's intent. David's intent is to show him kindness because he promised. To show steadfast love, covenantal love because he promised. And that teaches us something about the nature of covenant love, both of God and how we are to be with one another. Um, Mephibosheth himself does not necessarily deserve kindness. And then with the descriptions of being crippled, his name, one who scatters shame, being the grandson of David's enemy, 
There's nothing that deserves David's kindness, but David is showing kindness regardless of the condition of Mephibosheth, regardless of his worthiness. He's doing it because he promised. And that teaches us this, that covenant love guarantees kindness regardless of worthiness or condition. That is the worthiness or condition of the recipient of kindness. It's not the worthiness that determines that kindness. You know what it is? It's the simple fact that David promised somebody else, someone uh, greater than Mephibosheth. He promised to, and so he's showing kindness for his sake. That's hugely important for us in understanding why we as, listen to this, as the covenant community of Jesus... I don't know if you knew when you were baptized, if you were baptized, and if you haven't been, you should be if you're a follower of Jesus. It is commanded of us that you were baptized into a community that is covenanted to Jesus, covenant, steadfast love, and by implication to each other. And how is it, why is it that we can, like David, show this kind of of kindness to someone in our covenant community, or even outside our covenant community, that is, followers of Jesus, um, when they're not necessarily intrinsically worthy of it or deserving of it. We know know as Christians we're supposed to love one another as Christ loved us with grace, but we also know that's really, really difficult. But it's one of the ways in which we, as followers of Jesus, we um, display that we're like God in, the one, in, in that he is himself, like I said at the beginning, Trinity, he is himself love. It's one of the ways that we express him when we're able to love and show kindness to someone despite the fact that they are unworthy of it. Our church, Parkway Community Church, is filled with some interesting people. I'm one of them too. Look, I'm wearing this shirt. <laughs> you know, we, we have people who you might call Labradors. They'll lick you and hug you to death, and you'll, you'll think, I cannot handle this person. You have other people who are porcupine people. You get too close, and they poke you, and it hurts. You have, you have snapping turtle people who, you know, just kind of snap at you. They're not really gracious in their speech. You know, we have bulldog people who struggle with anger sometimes, and we have chihuahua people, you know, that, that bark and irritate constantly by their incessant talking. And I know maybe you have come from another church to Parkway thinking you're going to avoid all the porcupine people and all the snapping turtle people and the overly loving Labrador people. But you know what? They're here too. I'm probably a combination of all those things. And how is it that we continue to show kindness? Because that's what, that's what covenant love does. It guarantees kindness. I'm going to continue to show you kindness I'm going to show you kindness whether you're worthy of it or not, regardless of whether you're, 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 you've met conditions or whether you've been nice to me or spoken kindly to me. I'm going to continue to show you kindness. Why? Ultimately, it's for the sake of the one we're in covenant with. You follow? David's showing kindness to Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. And when it comes right down to it, we're supposed to love the people around us with this kind of the love Um, out of our commitment and for Christ's sake. They may not be worth it, it, that kind of love, but he is, you see? So when we find ourselves in a position where we're we're having a difficult time loving a spouse, loving our kids, or loving somebody else in the community, be they a porcupine or a chihuahua, um, a big key is to recognize I'm not really doing this for his or her sake at this point. I'm doing it because of him. 
That's one of the aspects of covenant love that comes to light. David chooses to love this man because he promised someone else. Covenant love guarantees kindness regardless of condition or worthiness. But this kindness takes shape in two remarkable ways. Two redemptive ways, which is equally um, challenging and also illuminating for us. Let me read uh, the final portion of the chapter. As I said, Mephibosheth is probably falling down before David, um, expecting to get his head lopped off, because that's what kings back then did. Put that, keep that in your mind when you read the next section, for it says, And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his faith and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth, one who scatters shame, grandson of my enemy, crippled and lame, without a house of your own. Says, do not fear, for I will show you kindness, chesed, steadfast love. For the sake of your father Jonathan, I will restore to you all the land of your uh, of Saul, your father, uh, of the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and, and, and said, "What is your servant that you should show such regard for a dead dog such as I?" That's a good response to overwhelming grace, isn't it? Like, what is your servant? Who am, who am I? That's what David said to the Lord in chapter 7. Who am I? And here, here Mephibosheth is saying, what is your servant? I'm, I'm like a dog compared to who you are, that you would actually show favor and regard for me. Verse 9, then the king, call, king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, all that belong to Saul and, all, and to all the house I have given to your master's grandson, and you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him, because he can't do it, and shall bring in the produce that your, grandsons, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants, and Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord king commands his servants, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servant. So Mephibosheth, and here's the end of the chapter, lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. Just a reminder that, that he's crippled, um, handicapped. He's less than um, ordinary men. And there's, there's two kind expressions, redemptive expressions of kindness that David offers this man, Mephibosheth. The first one is, is notice he promises him land. Not just promises him land, he restores to him his grandfather's land. Now, now you and I in the 21st century may not really get that, um, but from a whole Old Testament perspective, land is, 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 is intrinsic to the promise of God itself. God promised Abraham, this is going to be your land, a land of promise. And, and to the people of Israel, this is going to be your land. And when they apportioned it out, it was the inheritance that God gave his people, a symbol of his blessing and, and of his dwelling. This is the promised place. It was an echo of Eden back in Genesis chapter 2, and it's an anticipation or pledge of the new creation at the end of the Bible. So this little piece of land is seen as, as a restoration of God's blessing in this man's life. Now he has he received back the inheritance that was given to his father. So it's, it's massively important to him to have that piece of the inheritance once again, a sign of God's blessing. And David could have given him anything. He could have gone to the new bookstore and said, I'll get you the best looking Torah scroll and that's your gift. 
could have offered him a harem. I'm sure he could have offered him a harem or a brand new chariot or a wagon or some kind of a horse-drawn wheelchair. But he doesn't. He wants what they understood to be God's blessed inheritance to be back in the hands. And that's, again, redemptive. It moves along the, the story of the Bible that covenant love works even for us, if you translate it, to restore God's blessing even to enemies. That's what we, we want to do and why we're supposed to love people with kindness. Is ultimately, it's not about, about us, but it's about the possibility of them being reconnected and restored and the God's blessing in their life. That's what we Christians are supposed to be about, both in our marriages as well as in our workplaces and even in our, our own church. Is living and loving in a way that seeks to bring God's blessing, uh, the restoration back to another person. So let me apply this in terms of marriage for a moment. Why would a wife want to continue to show kindness to a husband who's emotionally detached and doesn't fulfill her felt needs? He doesn't do for her what she wants, and he's emotionally detached. But yet, she's, and according to her Christian faith, she's supposed to continue to be kind, not walked on, but to be kind to him, to continue to do the things she would normally do, to love and to show kindness, regardless of his condition. Why? Why would a husband continue to show affection and kindness, rub his wife's feet, or... Um, bring her flowers, despite the fact that she's chronically ungrateful and bitter. Doesn't appreciate it. Should he stop being kind? He knows from his Christian faith, no, I'm, I'm not. I'm supposed to continue to be kind because that's what God does to us. That's what David did to Mephibosheth. To restore is the reason. You know, over and over again, we're told in the New Testament, in a couple of places, that... Uh, Unbelieving husbands are supposed to stay, no, excuse me, believing husbands are supposed to stay with their unbelieving wife, and the reason given is because you might, through your continued love and kindness, you might win them over. That is, you might see God's blessing pour into their life. You see, that runs contrary to popular thought about why we enter into relationships with each other. Most people believe And perhaps some here believe that the main reason that you enter into a relationship or even to marriage is for the purpose of self-fulfillment, self-pleasure, or personal happiness. But what happens is if that's your ultimate goal or aim and those things dry up, well then things like we see all around us happen. That is, everything implodes because the purpose for it has been has been run dry. But what if our purpose as Christians isn't ultimately personal satisfaction with the things of this life or personal fulfillment with the things of this life or personal happiness with the things of this life, but rather to see God's blessing pour into the one who we're showing kindness to. That means then it's really not about us anymore. It's about, it's about Jesus first, but also about restoring them about at least being a part of the process. So that's one of the reasons we continue to show kindness even to people who don't deserve it. To restore. That's what David does here is he restores God's blessing to the grandson of his enemy. 
But then there's one final um, thing, this kind of the second expression of his kindness, which is really, it's climactic. And there's no way that you could actually get your heart around this um, unless you're actually there. But it's still, you read it, and it almost brings you to the point where you feel like you just weep with a sense of, I can't believe that David would go so far as to actually do this. That is, David invites him. He's restored land. Now, he could have restored his land, sent him off, and never seen him again. But he doesn't. Four times. He reiterates as if it's even more important than having a place to live and that that symbol of God's promise. He says to him, end of verse 7, he says, you shall eat at my table, the king's table. David's up here. Mephibosheth is down here. And he's saying, you're going to eat with me up here at the end of verse 7. Verse 10, but Mephibosheth, speaking to Ziba, Your master's grandson shall always eat at my table. It's not a one-time thing. It's not Thanksgiving. It's not Christmas. He will always come and eat with me up here, though he was down here. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table, verse 11, like one of the king's sons. He's treated not as a a a grandson of the enemy or, or a man who's who's substandard because he's crippled or because his name means one who scatters shame. He's eating at David's table always as one of his sons. He's completely brought him into the inner circle of his family. That's pretty impressive. It's a display of, of a man after God's own heart, the way a Christian should love, because that's the way God first loves us. I mean, to, to, to search out and be active. Like, how can I show kindness to, to someone that God puts in my life? And, and then to, to, to seek in the kindness to actually restore not just some temporal blessing, but, 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 but God's blessing in their life. And then to bring them into your own personal relationship, family. Um, to bring them, as David did, to the king's table from the bottom at the top. There's, there's one word for that. In the New Testament, it's grace. In the Old Testament, it's steadfast love. Because it's covenanted. David promised it would happen. I know we talk a lot about love, and maybe you talk a lot about love, but I'll tell you, right now, in our current 2013 time frame, we exist in a famine of love. There is a dark hole, a vacuum, where love does not exist. Most of what we think of as love is largely self-serving and self-love. The people are willing to to break their vows to each other for nothing more than we don't get along much anymore, for no substantive reason, or, or that someone could abandon their covenant community, local church, not for substantive reasons, but because they didn't get along with the porcupine and they run to somebody else, or that people largely seal themselves off either in the digital world or in their own houses and kind of insulate themselves from the needs of the world that are crying all around them. That's where we live. And that's not the heart of the Trinitarian God that we've come to know and that we've benefited from. All of creation comes from His love and redemption comes from His steadfast love. There's a hair floating up here. It's not my own. (laughs) 
God provides comedy relief right in the middle of the... Now, you know, Jesus said it in Matthew 24, and I thought about this a lot. He said, you know, and I believe he was talking about the church. He said um, in the last days, um, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of many would grow cold. And the many in that passage, Matthew 24, is speaking of those who are quote-unquote followers of his. The world would go dark and people would become unloving as a result. That's, that's pretty uh, descriptive of right here, right now. Or that Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3 said, In the last days, people are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money, arrogant, proud. The love, all is inward. It's like a black hole. I can't think of a more accurate depiction of today's culture than what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. So what, at the same time, what an amazing opportunity for God's people to rediscover the reality of this steadfast covenantal love that's willing to show kindness regardless of condition or whether the person's worth it or not because we do it for Jesus' sake, because we're in covenant with him and we continue to show kindness so that they might experience the blessing of God and ultimately might be gathered into the family of God. No longer strangers and aliens, but members of the very household of God to be part of what God has been doing from the beginning, entering into his family. That's where you and I need to live, and that's what we need to be, um, be that light. And the light is to show forth this kind of gracious... uh, persevering, um, tenacious love that doesn't stop. You know, we, we, my wife and I went to the, um, to the ocean, I don't know, probably three or four months ago, and, and um, this guy showed us this section of little rock cliff that had fallen down. You know, that happens on the West Coast. Huge, massive chunk just fell down, and, and it's rock. And if there's an easy explanation for it, it's, it's that the waves just keep coming. They just keep coming. And pretty soon, after years and years of constancy, the hardened rock breaks. And our city and places where we live need that constant, constant kindness of Christians just to continue to do it over and over and over again, even for people who don't deserve it. And watch as God breaks the rock. That's how he does it. You know why? And know where we get the strength from that? It's because this is how he loved us. You know, our, 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 our father loved us when we didn't meet the conditions. When we weren't worthy. God demonstrates his love towards us and that while we were still ugly sinners, Christ died for us. Um that it was while we were dead in our trespasses and sins that he loved us. He loved us ultimately because he promised he would. He promised David, he promised Abraham, and if you back all the way up, I think it's because he promised his own son a people. He promised he would. And that at the cross, he, he died to take the curse to restore blessing, the blessing of God's presence. And then in the resurrection, um, to form around himself and in himself, in the Son, a family. One family. Um, a family that he has said is welcome and invited to his table. This is where we are. 
You know, Mephibosheth, one who scatters shame, that's, that's you and me. We're the ones who scatter shame. There's no place that we go where somewhere we don't scatter shame. That we're the ones who are spiritually deformed and crippled. That we're told in the scripture we were by nature enemies of the Lord, and yet the Lord in his steadfast love reaches down and brings us up and says, I want you to be at my table always. That's amazing. It should be. This should be something that the heart sings about and sings a new song and tells of the salvation of God's steadfast love towards our souls who didn't deserve it like Mephibosheth to experience the firsthand embrace of of our Father through the Son, saying, come, eat at my table. I can't think of a, a better passage, actually, to introduce communion with, you know? I mean, Jesus brought us, um, didn't deserve it, but he says, come to my table, the table of the king, um, because he loved us and because he gave himself for us and because now we can trust in him that it's all taken care of. But this is... This is an amazing gift. And as, as we come this morning, and you take that bread in your hand, you remember this is, this is what covenant love, um, the price that covenant love paid for me so that I could come, not to be embraced as an acquaintance of God, but to be embraced like a son, a daughter, a friend by God himself. So as you take these elements of bread and the, 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 the grape juice, just... Just remember, this is, this is a symbolic way of saying, hey, you're, you, you, I've paved a way for you to come to my table because I am a triune God who loves and spills over in gracious love. And it's also for us a, a reminder that someday, someday there's going to be this massive table and Jesus is going to be at the head of it. And there's going to be no second seats. I, I think somehow we're all going to enjoy perfect fellowship and communion around that table, not as acquaintances and not as distant relatives, but as brothers, as family to God himself and the new creation. So as you come this morning, just maybe your heart needs to soak in the reality that, wow, this is how much God loves us, just like David loved Mephibosheth. Or maybe you've, you you've just haven't been a very loving person to your wife or your children or, or to other people in the church. Maybe you've kicked a porcupine um, and, 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 and you need to go and you need to say, and I'm, I'm sorry. I know that that's how God loves me is constantly and, and graciously and forgivingly, and I want to love you that way too. So in whatever way that the Lord speaks to you this morning as you come to the table, I just pray that you would just commune with him and do business with him and, and, um, and do his will in this moment as we partake at his table, the king's table, um, the bread and the cup. If you're new with us, um, then... As soon as I'm done praying, just invite you to come up as you feel um, uh, the desire to come up and be a part of it. As long as you're a follower of Jesus and you profess faith in him, this is for his people. Um, music will start, and again, you can take it back to your uh, seat, or, or some people like to kneel at the stairs. But just, this is a time between you and the Lord around the king's table to commune with him. As I pray, if I could have those who are going to serve communion join me, that would be great. Father, bless this time. Um, a reminder of the gargantuan, infinite price that you paid to bring us to the table, um, to restore to us the promised land, um, to restore to us the final and ultimate direct presence that we will one day share with you. So please bless 
right now, this time, as we partake of this ancient tradition of partaking of your table. In Jesus' name, amen.